Magnus Podcast, episode 29. This is Dante's St. Thomas Aquinas. Go! Welcome back to the Magnus Podcast, a production of the Albertus Magnus Institute, home of the Magnus Fellowship. And you can become a fellow today. It's completely free at magnusinstitute.org. Join hundreds of other fellows in the happy pursuit of wisdom under the light of great texts, studying in live and interactive online courses with a really good faculty, maybe the best. I'll let you decide at magnusinstitute.org. It is really great to see these last round of courses off to a great start with new fellows coming in every day, cross-pollinating, intermingling, getting to know one another from all walks of life, all across the world, really, and all professional backgrounds, academic backgrounds. It's really something to see. So I hope you do, if you are enjoying these podcasts and these lectures, Sign up now for the fellowship at magnusinstitute.org. So Professor Stephen Courtright is, as you might know, the founding president of the Albertus Magnus Institute. He's also a professor of philosophy and in the integral department at St. Mary's College of California. And he asks a very important question today. What does the work of St. Thomas Aquinas have to do with that of Dante? The answer may shock you. Here's the lecture. Enjoy it. Come, Holy Spirit. Fill the hearts of thy faithful, and enkindle in them the fire of thy lot. Send forth thy spirit, and they shall be created, and thou shalt renew the face of the earth. O God, who did instruct the minds and hearts of the faithful by the power of the Holy Spirit, grant us in the same spirit to be made truly wise, ever to rejoice in his consolations. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. St. Thomas Aquinas, pray for us. St. Albertus Magnus, pray for us. Our Lady's Seat of Wisdom, pray for us. Well, welcome. I'm, if I may, I'll say I'm especially happy to see Sean Tchaikovsky in the upper right, although I'm a bit dismayed to see how much more blooming his beard is than mine. And I'm also very happy to see Kate Aaronchild. How are you, Kate? And Father Nahoy. How are you, Father? last encountered outside St. Margaret Mary Parish some months ago. So welcome, all of you. Let me say something about the intention of this class. So the intention of this class is to make a nice pairing with Anthony Esselin's class by giving us Dante in Lent from his side, a guided tour through the world of Dante and the beyond from my side, the same tour, that is, we will read in parallel with Esselin's course right through the uh, Divine Comedy, but I will take time to stop and point out where, as it seems to me, the person of St. Thomas, who appears, of course, in the Paradiso, and the teaching of St. Thomas are especially prominent in Dante's work. And we'll start that today. So if you've got the um, auxiliary document up, there are a few ancillaries, some things that will help us communicate 
as we go through this um, course, and that is the way in which I cite St. Thomas. Okay. So you'll get a document every week, which will be a kind of outline of the class content, and it will contain citations from St. Thomas and some quotations and meditations on St. Thomas. The Summa Theologiae will be quoted by part, by question, by article, and by subsection, that is, by objection, or said contra, on the contrary, or responsio, response, or reply to an objection. Thus, when you see something like italic ST, Roman numeral 1A, Roman numeral 2AE, that's Summa Theologiae Prima Secundae, Summa Theologiae, the first part of the second part, question five, article six, the responsio, Thomas's laying out of his own doctrine on the question. So again, ST2A, 2I, question 22, article 1, I2 would be Summa Theologiae, second part of the second part, question 22, article 1, reply to objection 1, and so on. We will be citing also the Summa Contra Gentiles, which will come by book, one through four, chapter and paragraph, so easy to read. And we'll be citing the commentary on the Nicomachean Ethics of Aristotle by book, lecture, and paragraph. In this case, it matters what edition we're dealing with. We will be citing to the revised Litzinger translation edited by my teacher, Ralph McInerney, <clears throat> excuse me, and reformatted so that the old Litzinger translation from 1954 will not match our citations. The new revised edition from 1993 will match our citations. Okay? I think everyone got, and let me know if you didn't, I think everyone got a um, chronology as a kind of teaser for this. I'd like to say a couple things about that if I may. So I'm going to change my screen so that I can see it and ask you to change your screen to the chronology. So a couple things are important about this chronology are important both for Dante and for St. Thomas. And they're not highlighted on the chronology I sent you, but I'm going to say something about them. Uh, I'd like to make this course, incidentally, as interactive as possible, so please feel free to unmute and speak anytime. Okay, we'll have dedicated time for questions a little later, but please, if there are questions now, don't feel you're interrupting. Uh, unmute, speak, and uh, we'll go from there. So I'm wondering whether and to whom the following two references signify, make some sense. These are two spiritual movements originating in the late 12th century, whose influence carries over into the 13th and has enormous uh, consequences for the lives of Thomas and Dante. First of those movements is the movement of the Katari the Cathars, 
also known as Albigensians. Does that name strike a chord with people? It does with Father Nahoy, since his order arises as a way of taming the Albigensians, among other things. Right? So Albigensians make sense to people. Is there anyone for whom that's a completely foreign notion? Nobody for whom it's a completely foreign notion. Okay, excellent. So I'll just say this about the Albigensians or the Qatari. So the Qatari, and the word Qatari is from the Greek. It means pure, purified. The Qatari are the Puritans, literally, as in our Puritan ancestors, the Puritans of the 12th century. They're also heavily influenced by Manichaeism. They have a dualistic view in which the world, the visible creation, is evil. Mankind's purpose and destiny is to escape it and to return from this evil material world to the pure God of light who exists strictly outside it. So this aspect of Qatarism is utterly heretical and aroused a great deal of anguish in the 12th century and into the 13th. The other side of Qatarism is that they're rejectors, radical rejectors of worldly pomp, wealth, and the exercise of power by some human beings over others. That's a rather more attractive side of Qatarism. And combined with the second spiritual movement, Waldensianism, again, is that a word that signifies? The Waldensians, named after Peter Waldo or Valdez, a merchant in Lyon, who in the great famine of 1176 sold all he had, gave it to the poor, and began to try to live strictly according to the gospel, very much in the style of St. Francis of Assisi, 50 years before St. Francis of Assisi. So the Waldensians gave themselves over to mendicancy, itinerant preaching, and doing good works. And they too were a standing censure of the rather worldly and pompish, as opposed to papish, pompish ecclesiastical establishment of the day. The Waldensians were strictly orthodox until they were met by utter hostility in southern France, where they were located, from the ecclesiastical authorities. And then they tended to retreat into alliance with the Qatars. So in extreme southern France, in the region called Languedoc, by the opening of the 12th century, you have a vast spiritual movement dedicated to voluntary poverty and purity of life, Although, in rather, in the case of the Qatars, rather strange ways, confronting both the ecclesiastical and the secular authorities. It is on a, it, on a journey from Spain to Lyon. Dominic de Guzman, then a prior of the cathedral chapter at Osma, and his bishop, Bishop Diego, traveled through the roiled lands of Albigensianism. This is the, Albigensianism is the melding of Qatarism and Waldensianism 
after named after the city of Albi in southern France, which was the sort of headquarters. By this time, you have Qatar bishops, Waldensian elders and bishops, and an alternative church structure growing up in France. Bishop Diego and Dominic de Guzman in 1206 travel through the region, note the turmoil, and note that the legates, the preachers, mostly Cistercians, sent by Pope Innocent III to reconvert these people, are instead alienating them by one, taking a stance of condemnation and disapproval, condemnation, excommunication, etc., and show up, these papal legates, in the full pomp of um, the churchmen of the day. To give you an idea of what full pomp means, I'm going to quote the Dominican prior of Louvain, Thomas of Chantimpré, who was probably a contemporary of St. Thomas at Cologne when Thomas was studying with Albert there. Quote, I met an abbot on the street with so many horses and so large a retinue that if I had not known him, I would have taken him for a duke or a count. Only the addition of a circlet on his brow would have been needed, unquote. And again, the same Thomas of Chantempre, right, writing a little homily in 1248 now, some years later, about 20 years later, quote, a cleric in Paris was to preach before a synod of bishops. And as he considered what to say, the devil appeared to him. Quote, tell them this alone, said the devil. The princes of infernal darkness offer the princes of the church their greetings. We thank them heartily for leading their charges to us and commend the fact that due to their negligence, almost the entire world is succumbing to darkness. Unquote. Sound familiar? <laughs> Sound a bit familiar. Okay. So Diego and Guzman in 1206, for the first time, hold a disputation with Cathar clergy in Montreal in southern France. And the ground rules are this. The party who cannot prove his case from the Bible, from the scriptures, must be considered vanquished. And there's the seed. That experience is the seed of the order of preachers who were founded on the premise that you cannot force belief. It must be won by argument and by example. So you have the Dominicans as a mendicant order. What does that mean in the 12th century. Well, it means for Albert, St. Albert the Great, our patron, that he walks in the course of his ministry. He had a long life, 87. He walks a little over 50,000 miles. He does it in wooden clogs because members of the order are not allowed to use animals, animal parts. Okay? And he does it without any kind of mount. He's forbidden to own, to, to wear leather shoes, to use an animal. He, he does not own his habit. His habit belongs to the order. St. Thomas Aquinas, when he was writing the Summa Contra Gentiles in Paris, right, 
had to beg the paper on which it was written, and it was put together on little scraps because that's what they could get. Paper was fairly expensive. Parchment was fairly expensive. So the mendicants were serious. It's called the vol- it could be called the voluntary poverty movement and a movement grounded in the evangelical perfections listed in Matthew. What kind of success did it have? What is Thomas a part of? Jordan of Saxony, who's the second Dominican general, he succeeds the founder, Dominic de Guzman, in 1226, receives a letter from the order's delegate in Paris, quoting, during the first four weeks of my presence at the University of Paris, 21 brothers entered the order, six of them doctors of the Faculty of Arts. Ten years later, during the winter of 1235 to 36, the Dominican order at its uh, headquarters in the College of St. Jacques received from the university 72 scholars into the order. So the mendicant orders were an explosion, right? an explosion, a kind of healing explosion to the turmoil of the church as it entered the 13th century. And it is that that Thomas is attracted to. It's important to remember that Thomas was destined by his father, Landolf, for abbot of Monte Cassino. And in fact, when his family released him from captivity and he was offered the choice by the Pope of following the Dominican order to his destination in Paris or becoming abbot of Monte Cassino at the ripe old age of 21, Thomas chose Paris and the Dominican order. So it seems like those things are important to have in mind as we talk now about the um, about Dante's poem, which is a kind of inheritor of this. Two things roiled the 50 years before Dante's birth, and those were the Albigensian Wars, which were conducted, it has to be said, with unexampled savagery. When Pope Innocent the third called for a crusade against the Albigensians in 1209. The crusaders took the Albigensian city of Bezier in about two days by storm, and then they killed every inhabitant. Some by crucifixion, some by the sword, some by burning. And that set the tone, both for the attack on the Albigensians and for the Albigensians' resistance to it. There was that. And then secondly, In 1209, for the first time in the history of Christendom, a national king, Philip II of France, defeated a Holy Roman Emperor in battle, opposed the Holy Roman Emperor in battle, defeated him. The result was ultimately the driving of the English from France and the changing of the English order. And, and finally resulted in the conflict between Guelphs and Ghibellines, from which Dante would suffer exile from Florence. So these uh, troubles at the opening of the 13th century are extremely relevant for our two authors. I'm going to change again. So questions or comments?
Too fast, too much information. Let's see. Okay, so now I want to turn to today, today's lesson. I asked you to look especially at Canto 3, lines 16 to 18, which I will read. This is Virgil speaking to Dante. Virgil has explained to Dante his, Virgil's mission, and has now led Dante in Canto 3 to the gate of hell. Virgil speaks. This is Anthony Esselin's translation, of course. We have come to the place I spoke about, where you would see the souls who dwell in pain, for they have lost the good of intellect. And I've, and <laughs> I've italicized the good of intellect because I want to reflect on these lines. Here, Virgil, in a single formula, answers Dante's implicit questions and ours. Who are the inhabitants of this city of woe? Who are these dwellers in eternal pain? Who are those so lost that they are bereft right down to the consolation of hope itself? This altogether desolate race, les gens doloroses, have quote, lost the good of intellect, okay? That's Virgil's compact answer to the question, this is the gate to what? Answer, this is the gate to the dwelling of those who have lost the good of intellect. Now the term good of intellect signifies at once as a subjectual and as an objectual genitive. I'm going to illustrate those terms. So it's when we say the good of, the child of, the world of, we're using the genitive form in its English prepositional case. And there are two kinds of genitives. There's a subjectual genitive and an objectual genitive. As a subjectual genitive, a genitive phrase like the hearing of dogs is acute signifies as Dogs are acute hearers, not as listening to dogs is a smart practice. Although you could read it either way. Does that, that make sense? Okay. Then as the objectual genitive, a phrase like the love of Bach is the love of music signifies as to love Bach's music is to love music, not as Music is what Bach loves. So for the first phrase, the, hearings of the hearing of dogs is acute. As a subjectual genitive, it signifies as dogs are acute hearers, not as it might be interpreted as listening to dogs is a smart thing to do, an acute practice. As an objectual genitive, a phrase like the love of Bach is the love of music signifies as to love Bach's music is to love music, not as, as you might interpret it, music is what Bach loves. Okay. Notice that to read the love of Bach is the love of music as music is what Bach loves is to say that 
the love of Bach, that phrase, is in the subjectual genitive, and the love of music, that phrase, is in the objectual genitive. Okay. Everybody see that? If I read them both in the <coughs> excuse me, in the objectual genitive, I get the to love Bach's music is to love music reading. Okay. Now here I'm proposing at Canto 316. The good of intellect signifies both objectually and subjectually. That is, it signifies both that which fulfills the intellect, the objectual genitive, and the state of an intellect apt for fulfillment, the subjectual genitive. Okay. So with the formula, we have, with the formula, have lost the good of intellect. Virgil expresses what is common to all those who have passed through the gate, including, of course, Virgil himself and all the eminent intellects in limbo. He expresses what makes, as it were, for citizenship in the city of woe. Now that is to say that all, all, from the indifferent or lukewarm to the gluttons, and on down to the treacherous, exhibit subjectually a distinct not being apt to the good of intellect, and they all exhibit objectually a distinct failing to essay, that is, failing to approach or to reach to, the Latin word is adipsior, the good of intellect. Let's stop and take that in. From the first questions Dante asked Virgil regarding the gate. Virgil's answer is an absolutely comprehensive description or characterization of what they are about to, to experience together in the journey through the Inferno. They're about to experience those who have lost the good of intellect. Okay? Let's take that a little bit farther. The Catechism of the Catholic Church probably enunciates what each of us might well say were we asked the implicit questions to which Virgil's statement is a single explicit response. We would say, with the Catechism, the souls of those who die in the state of mortal sin and exist sine fine, eternally without limit, in fire and in separation from God in whom alone man can possess the life and happiness for which he was created and for which he longs. We might answer that way, especially if we know our catechism. And we might sum up the catechism this way. The souls in question fail of beatitude, or they miss the beatific vision. Okay. So what I want to point out is Virgil, instead of saying, this is the gate to those who have failed of the beatific vision, instead of saying, this is the gate to the dwelling of those who have failed of beatitude, chooses to characterize both those things, both those things, by the phrase, lost the good of intellect. Now, here's my proposition. And I'll have a proposition, at least one, sometimes more than one, every class. Here's my proposition. Dante's Virgil speaks in a Thomistic vein. 
speaks like St. Thomas when he characterizes the city of woe from its constitution down to its grand immiserator, if I may so speak, (laughs) of the devil, to its last citizen as the articulation in unsparing completeness of what lost the good of intellect entails. I'm going to propose that every single character we meet in the Inferno is an instance of what it means to lose the good of intellect, and that Satan himself, in the last pool, frozen, immobile, and immobilizing everybody else, is the prime example of what it means to lose the good of intellect. Okay. So there are two things to explore then. There's the good of intellect in the objectual sense, and there's the good of intellect in the subjectual sense, as these appear in the notion, the good of intellect. Okay? So in the objectual sense, the good of intellect indicates, is equivalent to the ultimate and complete, the Latin is perfecta, beatitude. That's Summa Theologiae, first part of the second part. Question three, article eight, the respondia, where Thomas speaks of beatitudo as distinct from felicitas, which is like Aristotle's distinction of makaria in the Nicomachean Ethics from eudaimonia. So the normal term for eudaimonia, for happiness in Greek, meaning success in life, being well and doing well, is eudaimonia. Aristotle says makaria has to be added by an act of gift from the gods. In other words, the good achievable by human action, according to Aristotle, extends to eudaimonia, which is a life lived in accordance with natural virtue. But the good achievable by human action does not extend to makaria, to those blessings which can be only the gift of the gods. And of course, Aristotle is no Christian. He's thinking of the divine as the kind of source of order in the universe. If the, if the, if the first mover, or rather, if the uh, movers, uh, secondary to the first, the daimons and others smile on you, you can have a makarios life. You can have a eudaimonistic life through your own efforts. So Thomas is distinguishing beatitudo from beo in Latin, which means to bless, right? from felicitas. Felicitas, like eudaimonia, you can achieve on your own, within limits. Time and chance happeneth to them all, even to the virtuous. But it's within the power, it's a good achievable by human action, as human action, that one uh, experience the happiness of felicity. Okay? So that's the good of intellect objectual. The objectual good of intellect cannot but be a gift if it is understood as beatitude, happiness in the sense of beatitude. Then there's the good of intellect subjectual, right? The good of intellect subjectual, and I forgot to translate this, means the apprehension by the intellect or the capability of the intellect to apprehend the universal and perfect good Okay, and to do so because the the will right, is proportioned to it. Okay, so 
the good of the intellect of the of the intellect subjectual is what every single inmate of Dante's hell exhibits. Every single inmate of Dante's hell exhibits the subjectual the loss of the subjectual good of the intellect, including Virgil. If you've read Dante before, if this is your second or third time through, you know that Virgil says and does some silly things. He's taken in by devils. He's incapable of commanding evil spirits. He has to call on help from heaven for that. Okay, And Dante occasionally has to correct him, especially when what's at stake is interpreting the malice of people that they meet in the underworld. Okay. Right. So in order to get at what it means to lose the subjectual good of intellect, we will first have a look at what Thomas means by achieving the subjectual good of intellect. What is it to achieve the subjectual good and thus to be a candidate, so to speak, or have the capacity for the objectual good? So I'm going to do a little bit of hop skipping and jumping, because to run through Thomas's complete argument would take the rest of our course. Okay? So we're going to do a little hop, hopping, skipping, and jumping. Okay? Now, the treatise on the subjectual good of happiness as an end to which man can be fitted, but which man cannot, human beings cannot, on their own achieve, that treatise is the, is the first part of the second part Questions one through five. So we'll look at what Thomas's teaching is there. So Thomas notes that those actions are properly called human, which proceed from a deliberate will. Okay. Now, a deliberate will means, well, first of all, what does the will mean in Thomas? The will means in Thomas just what it means in St. Augustine. If you've read the Confessions, you know that Augustine says, my, the will is, my capa- is the capacity for rational love. It's the capacity to anneal to something because it deserves it, because it's inherently excellent, and because as possessing or associating with it, you, the annealer, are also perfected, are also improved. So the will for Augustine is fundamentally the capacity to exercise rational love, love for a reason. The intellect supplies the objects, the reasons. The will supplies, by its very nature, an inclination of the whole person to the object which is lovable. Okay? So those actions are properly called human, which proceed from a deliberate will, from a will which is annealing or inclining to something because the intellect recognizes it as excellent or beautiful or useful or etc. Okay, so there are different kinds of loves, different kinds of wills. Okay, making some sense, I hope. So now whatever actions, Thomas says, proceed from a power. Okay. And of course, the human will is a deliberate power, power actuated by intellect, which turns into something, which achieves something. 
Whatever actions proceed from a power are caused by that power in accordance with the nature of its object. And the object of the will is the end and the good. Now, the end and the good are never separable. There are always two ways of speaking of the same thing. So if somebody asks me, do I know the way to San Jose? And I say, take 680, right? The, the, the description from Milpitas to San Jose and the description from San Jose to Milpitas are two descriptions of the same stretch of road. Okay? The description of a thing as the end in view or the end of action and as the good of the agent are two ways of describing the same thing, as it were, from Milpitas to San Jose, from San Jose to Milpitas. Okay? Two ways of describing the same thing. So the object of the will is the end and the good. You should read end and the good with hyphens. The end is the good, the good is the end. The end is the good under the aspect of I can achieve it. The good is the end under the aspect of it should be achieved. Okay. So accordingly, all properly human actions must be for an end. If properly human actions are actions of the deliberate will, then all properly human actions are purposeful. They are actions for an end. And so Thomas suggests that we should distinguish when we talk about human deeds, we should distinguish between things humans happen to do and human actions. And I will return to my lament over the relative paucity of my beard compared to Sean Tarkovsky's beard by noting that there are two ways to describe this excrescence on my face. One way is Courtright's beard is growing. And this happens to post-adolescent males. It's a human action, but it's not a properly human action. On the other hand, you could also look at what's happening on my face and say, hmm, Courtright is growing a beard. I wonder why. And there will be an answer. If Courtright is growing a beard, and it's not just the case that Courtright's beard is growing, the answer, what's he up to? Now, the question, what's he up to? will have an answer. He's hiding his weak chin. He's converting to Sikhism. He's meeting the demands of his wife. He's doing something which is purposeful to which this excrescence relates as means to an end and good. So, Properly human actions are always purposeful, although there are things humans do which are not purposeful. So, for example, it's true that human beings eat, and insofar as they eat, they have a great deal in common with dogs. But it's also true that when humans eat, they dine, and that has absolutely nothing in common with what dogs do, except that nourishment is taken. All right with that? All right, so that's the first thing Thomas notes. So if you're going to be capable of the intellectual, excuse me, capable of the good, the good of intellect, you must be the sort of being who act 
actually acts for an end. And not just an end, the right end, as we'll see. Okay. Then it is proper huh, to a rational nature to tend to an end as directing and leading itself to that end. Right? And that immediately is going to raise a question about the objectual good of intellect. Because if the objectual good of intellect is unachievable except as a gift, it will be in a fairly restricted or special sense that the rational creature can be said to be directing himself toward that end. And Thomas will, will take note of that. And then, again, two things, then, are required for happiness. Two things. The essence of happiness right, must be found in the subject. And an accident is required. Namely, the pleasure, the delight. It's often translated as pleasure. The Latin is delectatio, the delight, adjoined to it. So happiness is the achievement not the conquest, it's consecutio, right? So it's what follows upon. It's not a conquest or a seizing. It's not that kind of achievement. It's the consequence of the ultimate end, which does not consist in an act of will. Manifestly, the will is born towards the end. Okay. That is, desires the end in its absence. And resting in the end, when present, takes pleasure in it. Okay. The will is fulfilled in delight because the end is present, not conversely. A thing is not made present because the will delights in it. Therefore, it is necessary that there be something other than the act of will by which the end comes to be present to the one willing, whatever the end is, including the good of intellect. With the intelligible good, with anything which is an intelligible good, from the beginning, we will to attain the intelligible end, and we achieve it by making it present to us by an act of intellect. Therefore, the essence of happiness consists in an act of intellect. The fulfilling accident consists in the delight of the will. So that's a good, some of you might remember uh, Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics, where Aristotle in the seventh book spends a lot of time working his way around the notion, what is pleasure? And he finally decides that it's an accident. It's a delight which supervenes on the doing of a virtuous act, the doing of something, of something well, the doing of something excellent. Thomas has the same thing in mind here. So happiness, both felicity, Okay, is an act of the intellect before it's an act of the will. You have to identify the end and procure it intelligibly, if it's an intelligible end, like learning geometry. If it's a physical end, like getting money, you have to identify where it is, how it's to be obtained, and then act on it. Right? In both cases, the intellect leads, the will inclines, seconds, spurs, and then rests in the achievement. Okay. So in the case of a non-physical, spiritual end, the intellect leads. Although in this case, 
In the case of beatitude, the intellect cannot comprehend the end. It can only touch the end, identify the end. Finally, rectitude of the will is required for happiness, both antecedently and concomitantly. So even though the intellect leads, nevertheless, the will too must be in the right condition, must be rectified. So antecedently, the rectitude of the will is required since nothing attains the end without an appropriate order to it. In other words, Ends are objective realities. They're objects. They're things to be got to, attained. You don't get to Milpitas on Route 152. That's how you go to Gilroy. If you want to get to Milpitas, you've got to take 680 or 80. That's objectively the case. Right? So you have to be, you have to decide, all right, as much as I hate driving the Nimitz, I'm going to do it. You have to have the right will, right? in order to attain to the end. And then concomitantly, it's required that the vision of the divine essence is the vision of to be good itself. And thus the receiver loves in the vision whatever he loves under the common notion of the good which he knows. Now here I'm going to illustrate this. It's It's a commonplace of post-Vatican II theology, the theology of John Paul II in particular, that we understand our Lord Jesus Christ not merely to be the revelation of the character of God to human beings, but also the revelation of God's view of human beings to human beings. What God wishes us to be or to become is revealed in Christ Jesus. So, when Christ Jesus says, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father, he's, he's speaking according to the Thomistic dictum here. He's saying the notion of good, the common notion of good, by common we mean what unites all your other notions of good. In this case, let's say the human good. What unites all your other notions of human good is your common notion of good. If that notion is the person and action of Christ Jesus, you are one kind of agent. If that notion is something else, if that notion is the man of power, if that notion is the Nietzschean man of self-will, if that notion of the good is something else, you are another kind of agent, quite another kind of agent. So rectitude of the will is required because in order to reach intellectually, to touch on the end in view, you have to be a certain kind of will. You can't just be willing anything. So Thomas concludes, the rectitude of the will is required for happiness in the same way that the disposition of matter is needed for the reception of form, okay? So if I'm going to make a wedding ring out of gold, it had better be the case that that gold is not absolute 24 karat or it'll melt on my beloved's finger, right? It will deform. 
She won't be able to take it off without stretching it out. She won't be able to put it on without having it smear all over. If it's 24 karat gold, it'd be too soft to be useful. In order for it to take the form, serve the purpose, the matter, the what it is, the what's going to be wedding ringed, has to be itself actually potential to that. Has to be something which is actually capable of taking the shape or serving the function to which it is destined. Thomas says that the rectitude of the will stands to our capacity to receive the gift of the objective good of the intellect, the vision of God. The rectitude of the will is required for happiness for that in just the way that the disposition of matter is needed for the reception of form. If the will is not properly prepared, it cannot receive. It cannot undertake the function which God destines it to. Even though it cannot achieve that function by its own agency, it has to be able to receive. This is an instance of one of the great Thomistic dicta authentica. A dictum authenticum is a proposition which is at the basis of understanding, not explainable. Okay? So a dictum authenticum in this case is reception is according to the mode of the receiver. Not according to the okay, according to the mode of the receiver. Okay. So unless the receiver, in this case, the receptive will, is in the mode or is in a mode ordained to the gift, even though it can't achieve it, the receiver cannot receive. This is the sense in which the condemned in hell, in Dante's hell, in the hell of theology, the condemned in hell are self-condemned. Their distance from God is self-ordained. All right? So you have to have a subjectually goodwill in order to be capable of receipt of the objectual genitive, the good of intellect. That's Thomas's argument. It takes him 72 questions in the first part of the second part of the Summa Theologiae to go into it with complete clarity. Right? We've done a hop, skip, and jump. Now, I think it's ordinary for these courses to take a break. And I admit I've been going on pretty much full tilt. So shall we take a break? Would that be useful? People sort of recollect. And then we'll come back and I'll I'll finish this demonstration. It's going to be typical. I'm afraid it's always typical of my classes that what I propose for the day is usually too much. <laughs> so I wind up not fulfilling plan A. Right? And then I... I console myself with the wisdom of Helmut von Moltke, the elder, the Feldmarschall Helmut von Moltke, the elder, who famously said, the plan never survives its first contact with reality. So I never expect my plan to be successful, but I try to make it generous. Okay. So let's take five, shall we, or 10? Who needs, to, who needs a cup of coffee? <laughs> or, or a bite of something. Let's take 10 minutes and get it and we'll reconvene 
at about 6.45, 6.45 Pacific time. We're not in the Pacific region. Okay. All right. So I'll see you in 10. Yeah. Is how, do, do we know how Dante became so familiar with Thomistic theology? Ah, well, no. <laughs> the short answer is we do not. On the other hand, by the time Dante, so Dante is born roughly 50 years after St. Thomas. Actually, a little less than 50 years. Thomas died at 49. Dante, I think, was seven years old when, when Thomas died. So by the, by, the, by the time Dante is in school, formally, we don't know where he, if he went to university. We don't know where he went to university. We know that his family were very prominent Florentines and probably arranged for, for a first-class education for him. By the time he was in school, Thomas was already being called Dr. Communis, the common doctor, the common teacher of the medieval church. So there's that. Second, the, 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 um, the thing everybody wants to study in the, in the 13th century is Aristotle. Okay? He comes in two waves. Aristotle comes in the wave of direct translation from Arabic into Latin, in Toledo, in Palermo, any place that Muslims and Christians are thrown together. Those translations are iffy, and the commentaries, frankly, the commentaries of the Muslim readers of Aristotle would sort of startle you. <laughs> so, for example, Averroes, the commentator thinks that Aristotle teaches that there's only one soul and human beings, you and I, are just are just participants in a single soul. There's a single human life and we're aspects of it. So, um, it's hard to get that out of Aristotle, <laughs> but, but Averroes did. So, so there are two waves of Aristotle. There's that wave and then there's the wave of rethought, retranslated Aristotle translation directly from the Greek by, by Meribeka and others. And then there are Thomas's commentaries, which are simply the best. In other words, there's nobody else in the 13th century who comes close to Thomas for the comprehensiveness, clarity, and clarity that he brings to commenting on Aristotle or explaining Aristotle. You have to understand, at the University of Paris, nobody can afford a book. <laughs> None of the students can buy. They can't afford books now, but then you couldn't possibly afford a book. right? And so the method of instruction, if you were teaching Aristotle, was by lection, which means Thomas is in a room. There's a reader, a brother reader. The brother reader reads a, a, a few lines of Aristotle. Thomas then explains what's going on. The brother reader reads a few more lines of Aristotle. Thomas explains what's going on. The, the auditors are scribbling stuff down as fast as they can, trying to get trying to get their own copy of Aristotle with a Thomistic commentary, right, out of it. And so, so Thomas is just the champion at commentary on Aristotle. So it's highly likely that that if copies of Thomas's commentaries were at all available as they were, 
by the end of the 13th century, Dante got his hands on some or saw some or went through some. So there's that. And then the medieval course in theology was the sentences of Peter Lombard, Bishop of Paris. It's a compendium of Christian theology, the first summa. Thomas's commentary on that is without doubt the best. So if you were studying theology, you would get, and, and, and you could afford it, you'd get the latest edition of, of, of the sentences of Peter Lombard, which would be the sentences comment with, with comment by Thomas Aquinas. Now, what makes Dante's um, uh, familiarity with Thomas really mysterious is, and this is an astounding fact, Thomas, a great teacher, universally proclaimed a great teacher, as well as a great commentator and a great mind, has no, no noteworthy disciples. There's nobody in the Dominican order following after Thomas in the next generation who could be called Thomas's disciple or Thomas's continuator or Thomas's alter ego or Thomas's anything. Right? In fact, the next occupant of the chair Thomas occupied right, is a guy who denied half of what Thomas taught, Seeger of Brabant, who denied half of what Thomas taught right, so that it, it's mysterious you know, how Dante 50 years later or 30 years later came into, came into such obvious contact with, with Thomas. But I, I put it to you that that figure, that line, the good lost the good of intellect, that is a Thomistic line. Right? That is that is Dante deciding to, to introduce us to the plan of the inferno according to a Thomistic principle. Thomistic starting point. And as we'll see. That fact gets borne out in the details of the Inferno. Hey, you, why just listen to these podcasts when you can be participating in the great discussions that follow the lectures? Become a fellow today and do just that at magnusinstitute.org. The Magnus Podcast is a production of the Albertus Magnus Institute, copyright 2021, Albertus Magnus Institute, Incorporated, all rights reserved.